0: In July 2011, Antoine Haddad, an immigrant from Lebanon and father of three sons, executed an estate plan to benefit his son Marcel, to the exclusion of his sons Joseph and Elaine. Marcel was Antoine's primary caregiver, and unlike his other two sons, Marcel was not married and did not have children. In Antoine's eyes, Joseph and Elaine would be taken care of after he was gone because of their families. This estate plan was Antoine's way of taking care of his son, Marcel. Antoine died six years later in 2017. Ordinarily, the estate planning documents would control, and few questions would be asked about the execution of the plan. However, Antoine died of Alzheimer's disease, and he actually started to experience cognitive decline before he executed his estate plan in 2011. The excluded sons, Joseph and Elaine, brought a challenge in Superior Court to invalidate the estate plans, based primarily on an incapacity theory. In other words, that Antoine lacked the mental ability to knowingly prepare his estate plan as a matter of law. Following a bench trial, a Massachusetts Superior Court judge determined that Antoine indeed lacked the requisite mental capacity to execute his estate plans and invalidated the estate plans that favored Marcel. This is a tale as old as time, a brotherly squabble reminiscent of Cain versus Abel. Here, Cain vanquished the favored son Abel at trial, but was Abel resurrected on appeal? This is Haddad versus Haddad. (laughs) Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at BurnCoff Goodman. Today, we're examining a real-life Cain v. Abel case, Haddad versus Haddad. With me today is Jordan Shapiro, a litigator and trial lawyer and author of the extremely popular Massachusetts Practice, two-part volume on creditors' rights. Jordan represented the able in this story on appeal, Marcel Haddad. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks for joining. Welcome. Glad to
1: be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: So let's start at the end. Let's start with the appeals court decision entered in January of this year. Almost four years to the day after Antoine, the patriarch of the family, died, the Massachusetts Appeals Court reversed the trial court's decision and reinstated the 2011 estate plans in favor of your client Marcel Haddad. The basic principle underlying the decision was the idea that progressive cognitive decline is insufficient in and of itself to prove testamentary incapacity. In other words, to invalidate the estate plan. But you were the appellant here. You are fighting an uphill battle here trying to undo a trial verdict and get that result. So, Jordan, what did you see in this case that the trial judge missed?
1: Uh, A lot of issues we had uh, that we raised on the appeal, and the appeals court latched on to one of the issues that was the main focus of this case and I think is the this case is such an important decision that we haven't had something like this before and that was that at the time of the execution of the estate planning documents is the key to a decision as to whether or not there is capacity of an individual to sign a legal documents for his lawyer and so unfortunately for the other side at the trial They never asked their very, very astute and capable doctor what was the condition of uh, my client, uh, excuse me, of, of the decedent, what was the mental capacity of the decedent at the time the wills and the state planning documents were being signed. And as a result of that fatal flaw, I was able to get the appeals court to agree with our position and reverse the lower court.
0: Let's, let's nail down on that a bit. This, this doctor that you mentioned, um, he, he's identified in the decision as Dr. Chervin. Dr. Chervin was a treating physician of Antoine, but only after the estate plans were executed. But during the litigation, he sort of doubled as an expert. And at least from, from what I could tell in the decision, he attempted to opine that Antoine lacked the mental capacity in 2011. How did you address Dr. Chervin's seemingly damaging testimony and ultimately overcome that on appeal?
1: Well, uh, Dr. Chervin's testimony um, was um, somewhat uncertain as to what his what the um, what the extent of Antoine's uh, mental capacity was in 2011. And what he testified to and what the court wrote in the decision was that Cherven, uh was able to say that he was mentally declining and that he had conf- days of confusion, of delusion, of failing memory. But he was unable to say the extent to which it disabled him from being able to understand the nature of the will, the extent of the will, what the purpose of the will was, and that uh, issue was not dealt with by the doctor as of the June and July 11, 2011 period that was so important for the focus of the court, at least the appeals court thought that was the critical time period that we had to know what was his exact mental capacity at that time. And because Dr. Sherman had no opinion about that, because he said, as as the court found, the key to this decision is that someone may be, perfectly lucid on uh, one moment and totally without any capacity at all another moment and so that's one of the important lines I could actually probably quote uh, that line from the court's uh, decision they said it is the moment of execution that counts despite periods of confusion delusion and incapacity the testator can have capacity to execute these documents again there was an issue about the language that he spoke also. But that—that's the key factor. Is it's the moments of execution, and so what lawyers do. And I have some suggestions if you get to it. Asking me about what I think lawyers should do and can do to avoid the problems of, unfortunately, the attorney Karatsani um, did not do a great job. And as you saw in the decision, uh, the appeals court agreed with the lower court judges that his opinions should be discounted.
0: So I do, I do want to get to the the practice pointer. But for the listeners, I just want to give a sense of what Dr. Chervin did testify to. As I mentioned before, he was the treating physician of Antoine, although not at the time of the execution, as you pointed out. He diagnosed Antoine with dementia. He had records. Uh, medical records that dated back to around the time period of the execution. He had presumably all sorts of facts and testimony that evidenced Antoine's cognitive decline uh, before 2011 when he executed the estate plans. And interestingly, he had an MRI from 2011 that showed some evidence of physical changes in Antoine's brain before he executed the will. And so why, and maybe this feeds into the practice point that you are about to make, but why was that insufficient to support or at least provide some evidence of incapacity under these circumstances?
1: Well... Uh, Those notes and records that he examined from 2010-11, again, were not as a result of his personal examination. So he's inferring and deducing uh, from those records what was his appearance of the decline of his mental capacity. What was really helpful to us was the nurse's notes that were on those records that showed that he didn't need to have anybody interpreting for him, that he understood what was going on. He understood his medical treatment in 2010 and he understood in 2011, he was able to contact family and communicate with them and they understood him and he understood them and he was performing. He was going to work every day himself, taking the train uh, without anybody helping him. And so all of those factors uh, led us to have some doubt about whether Dr. Sherwin's inferences were as good as the nurse's notes who actually said, we talked to him every day in the hospital and he's a pretty smart guy.
0: So it was, it was the direct testimony Or the direct evidence, I should say, the actual evidence coming from the nurses that really was just overwhelming supportive of of capacity, as opposed to Dr. Churvin's testimony, which was much after the fact. I think that's
1: I think that's true uh, that the um, again family testified about 2010 11 they saw signs of forgetfulness they saw signs that he would make mistakes that he didn't. Uh, he couldn't identify what day of the week it was on a one day, and he couldn't tell what time it is on another day. And so, uh, but generally, he was functioning uh, as an independent person who showed that he was able to care for himself. He was able to communicate. Well, in Arabic and some language, and interesting, that part of the case, I don't see too many cases in in the, in the my research that deal with someone who can't talk English to the lawyer who is doing the estate plans. And that, for me, was kind of scary. But the court made a specific finding that a person who can't talk The language of the lawyer can still have capacity to understand, especially when the lawyer says he had discussions with him on the day that he signed the will. Again, the lawyer had lots of uh, flaws in his testimony, and I do want to make sure that we do tell your listeners about my suggestions because I have another case right now in which I had to deal with uh, me knowing that someone was going to just turn off my phone. Uh, somebody knowing that they were going, uh, there was going to be a will contest, and there is one, and it's pending, and we have a, not already had a hearing on it before Judge Conway. I expect in the mail. Uh, the, there's lots that lawyers can do that, unfortunately, Attorney Caritani didn't do. That he, sh- me, um could have and should have done. That I'd love to tell people. My suggestions are. What a lawyer, what a good lawyer does to avoid this whole problem, because if he was um, prepared and um, and had good notes and records of the meetings and the events with a client, um, this case could have been a slam dunk for those who knew that at the moment of execution is the critical time.
0: Well, let's, I mean, there there are so many different things to talk about within this case, and you know, I, as I had mentioned before the interview, I've already, this this decision came down in January, and I have already cited it four or possibly five times. But but why don't we just jump right into those practice pointers? They're they're fresh on your mind. What could the... They
1: are. And there's, there's a lot a lawyer can do. And so to me, uh, the first thing that the lawyer needs to do is to um, decide whether or not. It's likely to have a contest. I don't do it in every case, but you should be able to decide if there's one family member who's receiving all the assets and all the other family members are going to be removed, as had happened in this particular case. However, Antoine's estate plan divided everything equally between all his children. But, as he was failing, then my client was the sole, as you indicated in the opening remarks, He was the primary judge. But the important thing for me uh, is to um, uh, to do what I did in my last case. At the time of the execution of the documents by me with two witnesses, I tape recorded the pre-signing of the document's interview. That's the first thing. I had a tape recorder of the recording. So no one could deny that this witness was competent, understood what was going on, and was able to execute a will. So the tape recording, to me, is a good thing. Now, I'm aware that some lawyers will spend the money and actually have a video recording done of the entire execution of a will. I think that's great for the gazillionaire, uh, but for the ordinary person on the street, I think the tape recording is very good. That's part one. Before you do the tape recording, you have to do some research. And the research that I did was to see what other lawyers uh, had asked people who were executing wills to show that they had mental capacity your name, your address, the names of your children, what do you own, how much is in your bank, Um, what are your general assets, Uh, why are you choosing one person rather than another. Um, A lot of questions that I had, I had about 20 minutes of questions that I had learned uh, from doing research that you have to ask a person to show about mental capacity, what day it is who's the president of the United States, all a whole bunch of those questions, what time is it, all those things to show that the person understands. And I thought an important part of this case that I'm waiting for a decision on was that the uh, that the uh, witness uh, verbalized why she was cutting out uh, two of her children. One of whom was in jail and hadn't communicated with her until um, near her death and the other one had visited her recently Recently and my client had to get a restraining order to keep that child away. And so we have a very strong case. But I do think the other thing is to have witnesses that spend a little time Uh, During the execution, that's also recorded, where she's talking to the witnesses a little bit. So the witnesses got the sense, be able to testify as to what the client's capacity appeared to be, that she understood what was going on, that she knew what her assets were, she knew who her family is, she knew what was going on around her, and she had good reasons uh, to leave the particular asset. Interestingly, in this particular case, she cut out her children and left all of her assets to a tenant in her house. Uh, and so that's going to be a case that I'm sure you're going to read about someday, but uh, you do have to uh, do that. And uh, the other practical issue from this case, I think is really important, is that uh, the a trial lawyer in this case, whose name is Steve Kramer of Lexington, did a great job trying this case. Uh, the, uh, the only uh, appearance uh, of omission was, that he didn't serve expert interrogatories. That's really important in these cases, to serve expert interrogatories. But he did a good job, because Chapter uh, Rule 30B says that at the pretrial conference, you have to disclose who your experts are, and it's almost like expert interrogatories. And the other side didn't do that, actually. Uh, in talking to Attorney Kramer, he said he was ambushed <laughs> by the other lawyers coming up two weeks in advance of uh, giving them an expert answers or interrogators so you didn't have a chance yeah so those are my practical suggestions that i think you really have to um, prepare so that everything can be preserved for the court. Uh, Again, unfortunately, Attorney Karatsani had a way of expressing things that I think I, and again, you didn't see the transcript of his testimony, but he said, I think I did that. Really, I'm not sure who was present while the documents, while the estate planning documents were being signed. He didn't know who was there. I mean, he had the documents that were Witnessed and notarized. He had trusted. Were not, of course, witnessed and notarized. But I mean it, uh, it, it. And so, having careful notes, he didn't appear to have careful notes. Uh, and um, even though I was told that at the deposition he was great, at the trial the judge just uh, totally set aside his testimony. He didn't give it any credibility. And uh, again, he uh, um, he didn't do anything to. Uh, do a permanent record of the execution, although he could have anticipated uh, the attorney to do the execution, he could have anticipated a will contest in this case, and I think that's an important part for the lawyers to be aware of, that you have to be reasonably uh, alert to a probable will contest and take extra steps.
0: And I and I do want to come back, so, so one of the reasons that this attorney's testimony was discredited by the Superior Court judge, and and that finding was in the decision on appeal, was this issue that the attorney testified that he spoke to Antoine in English, and that Antoine understood everything. But as you pointed out, Antoine only spoke Arabic. And he didn't understand English, and he required extensive translation. And I want to come...
1: Not exactly correct. He didn't only speak Arabic. He spoke Arabic only to his family, but he was able to communicate in English at work, where he worked every day doing jewelry work in a Boston uh, location. Uh, And he was able to communicate with the nurses, uh, and that was in evidence. And he was able to communicate in such a way that the attorney felt he understood what was going on. And that's why I think the uh, the words in the decision that uh, indicated that the court felt that even though it's not the primary language of the client, if you're able to communicate reasonably well, uh, then the capacity is going to be sustained.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit. It was an interesting note in the decision that the ability to understand and comprehend the document in a certain language did not go to the incapacity issue, which was the only substantive issue addressed on appeal. But it could potentially go to whether or not the testator understood the nature of the documents and comprehended the documents. How how does that factor into these practice pointers that you just mentioned and in, in just in estate planning going forward? What are your thoughts there?
1: Well, again, I've been a lawyer since uh, 1966 and so I've been doing lots of these estate plans and every once in a while I'll have someone come in and again, the lawyer's judgment is important and I will actually have the will written in their language and in English and I will execute two legal documents, one in their language and one in mine and I'll have an interpreter and again, the The value of the recording is priceless in those cases. I've never had a contest uh, involving somebody who did not speak English well enough that I felt I could understand and trust that the will will be upheld in a contest. Uh, But again, the lawyers, uh, do have to think about uh, the option to actually bring in somebody to interpret and to rewrite the entire document. Right now I'm working with a, a Brazilian group doing their bylaws and then doing them in English and then in, uh, in the Spanish, and uh, Portuguese, whichever I'm doing. And so uh, that's uh, the secret to succeeding with these things is I think suggest that a uh, careful lawyer who expects the contest might want to give a lot of thought to translating it to the own the language of the uh, of the
0: clients and there again, I just uh, you know a- a- as you were saying the practice pointer about doing a recording, I just have to imagine that having a recording would address the the translation issue, if somebody appeared to understand, if there was a translation, if they were able to articulate during that recording that they understood the nature of the assets, the nature of the bequest, et cetera, and so forth, that that would be incredible, uh, definitive evidence of incapacity, of comprehension of the documents. The one point that I wanted to make as you were talking that I was thinking about is everybody's got these handy little phones these days and that, you know, you can, you can buy a little tripod. And I think for a, a very inexpensive amount, you probably could actually get a, get an audio and a, a, a visual of, of the entire will process in a state process. I just think that is just unbelievable advice and and really really could um, resolve probably nine out of ten maybe more will contests which are based on undue influence incapacity you know comprehension issues all the things that you saw in the hadad case in this
1: case even though the appeals court didn't deal with it uh, the um, the judge's decision that is, it is published uh, on Westlaw, uh, the, the judge's lower court decision uh, was kind of interesting because at the trial, they also dealt with the undue influence. And it was very important that the judge uh, realized that a parent who is relying upon one child as a caretaker is not doing uh, something that demonstrates that there was undue influence when the parent leaves all their assets to the latest caretaker. It doesn't mean that that individual did something to cause the parent to choose that child rather than the others. And in this case, it's interesting because my client, Marcel, did not own his own home. That's what the big deal was in this case, was that there was a piece of real property that was worth a lot of money that uh, Marcel inherited uh, as compared to the other two. And another suggestion that I want to make that I think might be helpful other lawyers. Every once in a while, I will have a client who will tell me I'm going to leave out my other children. And the reason I'm leaving them out is because they are very wealthy. And so I say, all right, well, I'm going to put into the will that I'm leaving these other children out, not because I do not love them, but because they have sufficient assets that they don't need any more money. And that is sometimes a peaceful bringing about so that the families aren't fighting and at each other's throats to say, You tricked him because he didn't love me anymore and he loved only you because you were forcing him to be dependent upon you and you made him leave all the assets to you rather than to me. And uh, that was something that I think is helpful to put into estate planning documents as to why, write it right into the document, why you're leaving out the other children. That wasn't done either in this case. And it might have helped. I don't know that it would, but it certainly wouldn't hurt. It would certainly give those children some peace to know that the parent was not leaving them out. I had a situation very when I was very young, where a very wealthy um, child was left out and he just was so upset that the father didn't leave a piece of him for this child to enjoy. And that was very upsetting. That he didn't know why he was left out. He thought that his father didn't love him, like want to have uh, you know want to leave something to be remembered by. And so that's what I learned very early along to always put into the estate planning documents some reasons why you're choosing one over the other. And that sometimes helps to
0: avoid lump. Just another terrific piece of advice. I mean, so many of these uh, will contests come down to emotion and, you know, uh, brotherly squabbles, as we pointed out. I got to tell you
1: one other thing for lawyers. I think one of the most profitable kinds of cases are these cases. Because when you have family infighting or the other kind of cases as neighbors fighting with each other, they will fight to the death to prove their right. And they don't care how much it costs them. They will go to the ends of the earth, go bankrupt and broke to pay their lawyer's fees, to teach the other side a lesson. And that's an awful thing that has had to deal with. But for the lawyer, it's a great source of income.
0: Thank you again. Just an important case, and I really uh, appreciated you taking the time to provide those practice pointers. I think that could result in a monumental shift, and you know really help uh, estate planners avoid these types of will contests going forward. Now, I, I do want to shift gears because we have a. A bonus here today for our listeners. Jordan, as you might imagine, has been quite active in his litigation practice and, in particular, in his appellate practice, and has another very important appeals case that he wanted to discuss briefly on the show. The case is Hartog, Bear and Hand, that's a law firm, versus Clark. This is an appeals court decision that came down in April of this year, in which the appeals court essentially held that the Homestead Act does not protect a residence from the levy of an execution on a judgment so long as the party seeking to collect on its judgment formally, and I'm putting air quotes on this, suspends the collection process at the time. That's known as a levy and suspend. I believe you addressed it in in your creditor's rights uh, volumes. Jordan, can you give us your perspective on this case?
1: Well, I've a Applied for a further appellate review to the Supreme Court because I think that the appeals court is mistaken. We've taken that position in our books for the last 10 years and we think we were right. But what the court focused on was not the language in the statute, which was troublesome to us and what is really the primary basis of the appeal. But the court focused on was the, uh, the uh, neglect of the creditor to try to take possession of the home that's protected by a homestead. And so the court had no problem with allowing the creditor to levy on a judgment. Again, the Homestead Act specifically includes the word attachment is exempt from the ability of a creditor to put a lien by means of an attachment. And so in this particular case, the attorney before judgment uh, attempted to get an attachment and it was denied. It was appealed when the denial of the, when the attachment motion to attach was denied by the Superior Court. The attorney appealed to the single justice who confirmed the lower court that the attachment protected this property that did not have half a million dollars in equity. That's what the floor is, the property is. Uh, as less than a half a million in equity, the creditor is not supposed to be able to put a lien on it that will impair the ability of the um, debtor to be able to refinance his house or sell his house. And even there's a protection in the homestead law that deals with if he were to sell the house, You would have to buy another house or invest that money in another house within a year. But that's really not the issue in this case. The issue in the case is that the judges uh, in the appeals court uh, believe that as long as the creditor doesn't try to do anything to interfere with the possession, of the property by the owner, then it was okay. And they wanted to be sure that in the event that down the road, the property went up and valued over a half a million dollars and the creditor wasn't aware of that, the creditor had a secured interest in the property based upon the judgment uh, that could uh, then be followed through in the event that the uh, real estate uh, again, increased in value to more than half a million dollars. They didn't want to force this creditor to argue very eloquently to the appeals court that how does he know when the property is going to be worth more than half a million? He should be able to put a lien on the property today. And then if and when it becomes worth half a million, he can levy on it. Creditor can object and say, no, no, it's not got equity more than half a million. There would be a hearing on that. But that was really a bothersome path to us because we had an amicus that joined me on this particular case and agreed that it impairs the ability of a uh, of an owner to borrow money, uh, to take a, a loan, a line of credit, uh, apply to uh, get a new mortgage, refinance a mortgage, do all kinds of things without having to deal with a creditor. And what the we thought that the uh, whole purpose of the Homestead Act was to avoid the debtor Having aggravation and problems in getting rid of a creditor uh, when the uh, obvious uh, value of the property doesn't have a half a million in equity. And that was something that, again, he didn't want to have to. Uh, sit back and wait until the house gets to be more than half a million dollars. He was looking to, as the court said, fixes priority if the equity exceeds half a million of the homestead, lapses as removed. That's what the last words of the judgment is. And what we say is the court ignores even though the word attachment is in there, the words execution is also in the exemption. And everybody seems to ignore that in saying that uh, no, you can't attach. And what bothers me is if this is carried to a to an extreme, then why not allow all the creditors to attach? Everybody's house is protected by a homestead, as long as they aren't trying to take possession, interfere with the use and occupancy of the property. It's really an awful decision, uh, again for uh for For creditors, it's a great decision, but that is, it's an awful decision. And in my own private practice now, a lot of the creditors used to just sit on their attachments and wait until the property gets sold at some point uh, or wait until, uh, uh, but now what they're doing is they're a levying and suspending, they're getting judgments and levying and suspending. And so what I've done over my lifetime is for creditors who did get attachments when there's a homestead, I probably removed a dozen in the last two or three years of attachments that were placed on people's property You didn't have equity in half a million dollars. And I have the forms in my law books and how to do that in the event somebody wants to get rid of an attachment at somebody's house. And frequently all the creditors did was they just wanted to get an attachment to the property. Um, and so, uh, nobody nobody uh, forces. There isn't an unfair debt collection practice. yet. I also cover uh, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act? And even though we tried to get the attorney general and others to impose uh, an unfair debt collection practice when an attorney attaches property that's protected by a homestead, that isn't true yet. So plenty of lawyers can get away with attaching property uh, that debtors sometimes don't pay any attention to until they either want to sell or ref- finance it and they wake up one day and they say, oh my goodness, I got an attachment to the property. And what they do is they realize they don't have equity in half a million. They'll call me up or some other lawyer who knows who's on one of these. I'm very active in the bankruptcy bar. And so they'll call me up or somebody who's active in the bankruptcy bar and they'll move to get rid of the attachment and every time that's been allowed. I haven't lost one of those. I've had probably a dozen of them in the last couple of years and it's just a, a good thing. But This surprise decision is something that I really, I'm having trouble um, accepting, Uh, and that's why hopefully the Supreme Court will tell us soon that they're going to take it up. It is a case of first impression, and that's one of the bases. It is a case that's emotional. It's a case that's wide-reaching. It's a case that has wide effect on the world of creditors and debtors' rights.
0: It there's just so much to unpack in this decision, kind of like the Haddad uh, decision. But you know, you mentioned the 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 text, the the language of the homestead statute, and and it was interesting. The decision didn't really focus so much on the the text of the statute, as you pointed out. It really relied more. The court, the appeals court, relied more on both the purpose, as you alluded to. They sort of said, "Well, hey, look, you know, the purpose of this thing is to present to prevent dispossession of the homestead by by families that are protected by this act." But I also read uh, sort of a, a that this was a practical decision, and what the appeals court said was, "Well, look, if if we don't put." If we don't allow creditors to at least levy these executions, even if the equity might not, be, might not exceed $500,000, well, then what happens when the equity does exceed $500,000? Could another creditor then jump in front of that creditor who has a valid judgment? You know, sort of like, what are we supposed to do here?
1: And that's unfortunately exactly what I think was the thinking of the appeals court. They were dealing with common sense and being practical rather than dealing with what I think is the common sense is first read the law see what it says, interpret the law as it requires your common sense to interpret. And rather than dealing with the emotion of a creditor being deprived of his opportunity to seize a person's home when it could be seized for non-payment of debt, uh, rather than doing that, they just uh, bypass the words in the Homestead statute that says you can't do an execution on judgment either. As you look at the other words, the attachment is plainly there uh, that uh, and they, they apparently, as I fear, is carrying it to an extreme. There's no reason why they're not going to just discount the whole uh, uh, homestead law and say, we're not going to put any uh, credibility on that at all. We in the court, rather the legislature, are going to decide that the Homestead Act is useless. And it it has no meaning at all because people can attach, uh, they can levy. And as long as they're not taking possession, uh, I'm going to uphold whatever the creditor does. And I thought the court was kind of debtor oriented. Some of them had some experience doing criminal work. uh, And some of these were uh, uh, those that uh, would understand of the rights of the debtor. But this group obviously focused only on what they thought was their common sense and logical result that they came to, which was let the creditors all levy on judgments as long as they don't try to seize. And if the debtor has a problem in refinancing or trying to go to a mortgage, then it's up to the debtor to contact the uh, creditor, which is aggravation, unnecessary stress, unnecessary having to deal with a problem of the past that the legislature tried to avoid for people. Um, it's just ludicrous. It's a very, very sad, bad decision. Again, we'll live and learn to see what the Supreme Court does if they can it.
0: Jordan, that's all the time we have today. Congratulations on a tremendous tremendous victory in Haddad. Best of luck on hartog Bear, And thank you so much again for your time today. And thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure talking to you. That's our show. Check out our show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic, reach out to me at rstetson at bg-llp.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And of course, if you like what you heard, please leave us a positive review. Thanks for listening.